Hello, everybody, and welcome to this month's episode of Jerome and Kevin Present. And this month, we are continuing our trek with the IFC television series Brockmire, and we are covering season two. I am your host, Kevin Ford. The other host, Jerome Cusan, is with me. And it didn't even occur to me, Jerome, but it feels fitting that we are covering this at a time where we started recording in the summer and now we're moving into the nice crisp fall, very much like the baseball season uh, transitions uh, in real time. Yeah, uh, it's really nice. By the time people are listening to this, the Major League Baseball season will be just about over as they are transitioning into the postseason. Uh, the big October run of the uh, the Division Series, the League Championship, and of course the World Series. So yeah, it's uh, it's a very stressful time if you are a fan of one of the teams, uh, as I am, Kevin. But it's also uh, it's also kind of a fun time. Uh, because it's uh, it's the end of the baseball season, and uh, what a uh, what a season of television we're going to talk about. Um, you know, Kevin and I have not shared our thoughts on season two with each other, so this is going to be very fresh. And I will just start off by saying that coming into this rewatch of Brockmire, which this is for me, uh, season two was my least favorite of the four seasons. And after watching this season, kind of in a binge kind of with the context of the rest of the series in mind, I liked season two more this time around. That's interesting. I, I was really surprised to hear you say you liked it least because I definitely very much enjoyed it. Hard to say if I like it better or less than season one. I think the best episode of season one is still better than my favorite episode or what I think is the best of season two. But I also think – it was really smart of them to get out of Morristown, PA, because I think it fr- it naturally freshens up a show that, while really good, it's like how long can you keep Brockmire in the same place, doing the same thing, and it still stays fresh and relevant and whatnot. So it was it was interesting uh, for them to take it after one season into New Orleans, but that gives it its own environment and its own new. A set of adventures for Brock Meyer, especially somebody who is a uh, self-admitted alcoholic to uh, experience as his new job. And that's, I guess, as a reminder for where season one left off is Brock Meyer left Morristown, uh, PA, to become the new play-by-play announcer for the AAA team, the New Orleans Crawdaddies. And uh, he left Jules behind, who said, if you ever come back, I will not take you back. And she feels like he will come crawling back. More on that a little bit later, but so now we start uh, season two with Brock Meyer and Charles, who he brought with him, living in a loft together in New Orleans. And Brock Meyer is, I was going to say, back on his bullshit, but I don't think his bullshit ever stopped. Uh, maybe for a little bit as he was in a committed relationship, but now he is uh, uh, on a rampage of sexual conquest to the point where he has a whole system where Charles gifts the woman the morning after a gift basket of stuff and he makes himself scarce. Uh, This woman he woke up on is a very thick black woman. He wakes up on her buttocks. That's how the series starts. And she's obviously a repeat customer because she has certain requests about what baskets to get. But Brockmeyer does have a special basket waiting for a special someone, wink, wink. But right away, you're seeing the dynamics of Charles and Brockmeyer living together and that Brockmeyer is still Brockmeyer. The best part of this gift basket thing. And I'm so glad that I get to tell you this and hear your reaction. This is actually based off of a real thing. So Derek Jeter, you know who Derek Jeter is, right? Yes. I, that would be insane if I didn't know who Derek Jeter was. Okay. So Derek Jeter, of course, was a baseball player for the New York Yankees, a shortstop. He was there for 18 years or so. He used to, um, he used to um, enjoy the pleasure of many women over the course of his career. 
And the morning after, he would give them gift baskets, just like Brock Myers doing. And I believe Charles or Brock Meyer even calls this the Jeter. If he did, I missed that line. But that is interesting in in the wake of um, speaking out and Me Too and things like that. Wondering if uh, I don't want to say this is a form of of hush or keeping the women on your good side, but it is an interesting practice for someone in Derek Jeter's position to be doing such a thing. I mean, I don't know how I feel about it because it, as long as every, as long as it's all consensual, I don't think it's it's necessarily a problem. And he also wasn't married either, so I think it's one of those things. It's kind of more funny than it is. I mean, it's kind of gross too. But it's, it's it's weird more than anything else. It's it's weird, and this I mean, this whole opening scene uh, is is kind of weird in itself. Uh, Kevin, are you going to recite the Brock Meyer? monologue about butts because i think it's important that you do that biggest change in this country in the 10 years that i was gone america went from being a boob nation to being an ass nation i mean 30 years ago if a company ran an ad campaign on three tv networks and 10 magazines everybody saw it and what they saw mostly was boobs 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 i mean eventually we just forgot all about butts We were just so relentlessly hammered with images of boobs. And by the 80s, Charles, big old fake boobs. Just these enormous sacks of viscous chemicals that were bolted onto the front of a woman's chest in defiance of all good taste and gravity. I'm at the big Frida Bounce show last night, and I'm just, I'm getting lost in the applause of like a hundred clapping asses. And it hits me. It dawns on me. I am surrounded by the very people that got America back into ass. I'm talking about straight black men, the gays, of course, and thick women. God bless them. Because see, when the internet expanded all media into the limitless chaos that we know it to be today, the power of the straight white male gaze got diluted. And all of a sudden, all these long forgotten voices could finally be heard, man. And they were screaming, butts, come on, butts are wonderful. And that, my friend, is how the titty wool that had been pulled over our collective eyes was finally lifted. Man, this is a long soliloquy about butts coming back into the zeitgeist, but that also, like, this is going to be a weird thing to talk about, but I feel like that's been, like, a real reflection in life, too, is, like, I just remember for the longest time it was about, you know, when, when it was, like, sexy women and stuff, it was all about the top half of their front, and now it seems like butts have made a huge comeback into the zeitgeist of what what is in for women and thicker women and all that stuff is, you know, a body positivity thing or just companies and stuff like embracing that. Oh, people like women of all shapes and sizes. Yeah. I mean, I think that artists like Lizzo and Megan Thee Stallion have certainly um, been a huge part of that as well, as we should quickly move away from this topic because two white guys talking about this is probably not the best idea. No, I would, I would say not. And so in his professional life, Brock Meyer is having a tough time getting the fans of the crawdaddies behind him. Uh, But on the other side of his professional life, his podcast called Brock Bottom, where he shares stories of his life, is number three in the country. And he's doing live shows. And these live shows are seemingly very successful. The the setting is very weird because I've been to a couple of live podcast tapings. They usually take place in like a comedy club or a theater or something like that. And this seems like a place where like a cockfight would take place, where it's like a circular place where Brock Meyer is sitting on a stool in the middle just telling stories to the crowd. And then afterwards they bring him booze and drugs and he has a good old party time. It seems like a great life for Brockmeyer, but 
Uh, it's interesting just seeing his podcast take off and do so well. But when it comes to his real love and the thing that he's uh, made his life around baseball uh, and commentating in Louisiana is uh, just not going so great. It's definitely a mixed bag. And it's also worth pointing out that this apparently is taking place one year after the end of season one. So a lot of things have happened and his podcast has been able to take off. So I don't know about you, Kevin, but maybe going to a live podcast taping is fun. But listening back to them on audio is generally not a pleasant thing. And look, the pandemic has been really terrible for a lot of reasons, but not having to listen to live podcasts was kind of nice. I agree. So I had a, so the two I went to, one was recently was the Doughboys podcast, which was great because they usually bring a couple guests with them. And because of the nature of their podcast and traveling, they often will go to localized restaurants that are chain in nature or maybe not and talk about those. So it does add something unique to the show that you wouldn't get otherwise. And those are actually pretty good um, back on audio. And then the second one I never listened to because I didn't listen to it was Kevin Smith had a showing of his groovy cartoon movie, which was awful. But then afterwards, him and Jason Mewes had a live recording of their like Jay and Silent Bob get old podcast. And that was excellent. And they were able to take, you know, fan questions and stuff. But I do agree. There were certain podcasts where I saw if they had a live episode, I'd delete it. And I just would never listen to it because they were a chore to listen to there. And and truthfully, I don't even remember if these live shows were recorded or just an audience Q&A thing for them to ask him anything and him get on long stories or not. So, But either way, he's it seems like he's selling a lot of tickets and having a hell of a time. I mean, to the point where later Charles thinks that Brock Meyer should retire from baseball and just tour with the podcast. That sounds like – you know, he's their money guy. He's his manager. So if he's looking at the books and making it seem like you could just make a living off this podcast and that's his recommendation, uh, that that goes to show you how successful it is. For sure. And the one thing I will say that I think is a huge positive of this season is we get a lot more of Charles. And I think this is something uh, that's really important because in season one, yes, he was there as kind of a supporting character, but he wasn't necessarily given a lot to do besides just being kind of Brock Myers foil. It was good to see him have a lot more agency and this starts right from the get go. And part of it is Jules isn't there, which I think the show does lose a little something because Amanda Pete and Hank Azaria have really good chemistry, but on the positive side, we do get a lot more Charles and that's good. Yes. But a lot more Charles in the season also, I think really freshen things up and seeing a lot of their dynamic, I think is what made the show work. Uh, but in the baseball world, Brock Meyer gets excited because there's an, a, a beloved broadcaster in Atlanta named Art who is retiring, and we'll get to more of him later. And he's one of the people in consideration for that role, but he's in competition with this young hotshot announcer named Raj, who's played by, and I apologize if I butcher this, the, the actor's name is Utkarsh Ambutkar, and they're kind of in competition for that role. And Brock Meyer, overall, his likability is a lot less than Raj's. Uh, and they've realized that his podcast and internet fame has not transferred into more viewers or fans of the Crawdaddies at all, which honestly isn't surprising. I think those are kind of two different worlds kind of coming together. And I think there's probably plenty of cases where uh, that is the case, where you have people who just because they have a successful podcast or whatever doesn't necessarily translate into more viewers or consumers of whatever they do outside of that podcast. I think one of the things that you're seeing is the disconnect between Brock Meyer's fame and how popular baseball is and the f- baseball's popularity. This is something that 
a conversation we're going to put a pin in, and it's something that we should come back to in future episodes because it is going to play a factor. Is just how many people are watching baseball, why people are not enjoying baseball, and just kind of the overall uh, popularity. One other thing that's really fun to follow about this season is Brockmeyer has some sort of rivalry with the Crawdaddy mascot. The payoff is wonderful, but just seeing on random episodes him getting into minor physical altercations but yelling matches with a mascot that that can only gesticulate in his direction. There's no speaking of the Crawdad uh, is is a very fun through line, and we see the, the beginnings of that here. You know what the best part is, is they don't actually explain why they're feuding. And nope. <laughs> I think it, TV shows are so tempted to over explain things now. I love the fact that they just instantly hate each other. It is hilarious that they hate each other. It, it's almost it's very Simpsons like. That's how it feels to me. It's almost it's very cartoon like just the way that they hate each other, which is fitting given there is an entire episode about Homer being a mascot. But this it it felt it felt like a cartoon, and I I mean the payoff in episode six is great, but it almost feels like there's like a missing season of this show where we explore Brock Meyer hating the mascot and and amongst other things. So I, I very much appreciate the fact that you know life goes on even when the show isn't happening like their lives are still going on and i think that's that's a good thing same i don't need to know why they don't like each other it's just important i know that they don't like each other a lot that's it and i think that my favorite my favorite though is him dressing in his jacket and drinking i think that was (laughs) i mean just very funny and then the end of the episode has a really awkward moment where Brock Meyer, in order to bolster his uh, acceptance amongst the crowd, invites a Make-A-Wish kid into the booth, and it goes very awry. Uh, and I, I've wrote, written down some quotes that really stood out to me, and Brock Meyer, he says the quiet part out loud, saying that we love kids with cancer because their imminent deaths remind us we're, all, we're still alive and we're not the ones being punished. And somehow he gets off light with the one-day suspension because that's what uh, happens to old white men in positions of power. But... Uh, this was cringeworthy, but very funny, as many things in Brockmire tend to be. I think that this show, the thing that it does so well, and I think part of what makes the writing so brilliant, is that it is able to mine humor from things that should not be funny. And I think that you got a little bit of that in season one, the abortion episode. I think it's even more pronounced in season two. Uh, by now that you've cut, you're you're either in or out with the show. I feel like like if you watched the first season and you enjoyed it, then the, what what happens in this episode with them joking about kids with cancer, like you've either accepted that or you're just not watching it. And I think that's um, to their credit. I think they understand their sense of humor and what they need to do to create a funny show. So uh, yeah, it's just a representation of what the show does really well. And Charles tells Brock Meyer after this that maybe it's time to make a call back home. And he does to Uribe, who shows up in New Orleans at Charles and Brock Meyer's house to uh, have themselves a few overnight drunks. And that is not at all what Charles meant, but I was really happy to see Uribe back. Yeah, it was good to see Uribe back. Uh, the way that they incorporated him into this season, I think, uh, was really good. And, uh, you know, it's good to see that they did not leave him behind because he was such an enjoyable part of the first season. So much fun. And we learned that Uribe was cut by the team from Jules. And we also see that uh, not only do they have the basket system, but Charles also is able to piece together some clues from cell phone videos and whatnot to find Brock Meyer. Uh, 
after running into his one night stand, who says that uh, Brockmire tried to eat her ass and he wouldn't let her. And this leads to another great line where Charles finally finds Brockmire and says, your breath smells like ass. And he says, I wish uh, just that's the kind of the, the writing that makes this show so great. Uh, is it is it crude? Of course. But that's Brockmire for you. I'm on this ride. Give me the crassness. It also directly contradicts what Kevin Smith believed in Clerks 2. You never go ass to mouth. That's another thing that's made a big uh, comeback in recent times, the propensity of asses in media and then eating ass becoming an acceptable thing. Uh, let's talk about that for an hour and a half. Let's let's not. Uh, it's good to know that Brockmire is a generous lover, though. It is. He's very generous. Good for him. And so we get more to Charles's life as he's trying to juggle being Brockmire's assistant in the booth and also in charge of the merchandise from his podcast. And he even tells uh, Brockmire that, hey, I've got a night off because it's my birthday, so I'm going to have dinner with his family. But later, Brockmire uh, fakes a near-death call to surprise Charles with a birthday party at their home with nobody else but the two of them except for a sex worker that Brockmire's called so Charles can lose his virginity. Charles is not into this at all. Uh, Brockmire ends up puking on this brand new pair of sneakers that Charles bought for himself as a gift. And uh, <laughs> what I love is that this came after they were eating uh, some birthday cake and stuff. And Charles pukes on the shoes and says, I got to cut back on the sugar. My one true vice, which is obviously not true at all. <laughs> uh, clearly not true. Um, I like that we get to know a lot more about Charles in episode two, uh, the dynamic with his family, because I think one of the questions that I had after season one is like, how does Charles end up in this situation? He's obviously very young. He's stuck in this small town. I am sure that his experience, while similar in many ways, uh, because he's black, obviously means that he probably had uh, a different upbringing in Morristown, Pennsylvania. But you do see that he does have uh, – he has a family unit, uh, but this family unit is very dysfunctional, and that dysfunctional quality is obviously what makes Brockmire such an attractive figure to him because even though Brockmire is a very messed up person, Charles has kind of been surrounded by a very messed up situation in his own right. So I do I do appreciate the fact that we get to see Charles's family and get a lot more insight into the kind of person that he is and into the kind of the person that he wants to be. And I think an important aspect of this is the idea of leaving your hometown. I think it's something that is kind of a rite of passage that somebody who is trying to better themselves or is trying to uh, improve their lot in life, that that's what they do. They leave wherever they are and go to someplace new and try to um, improve themselves. And clearly that's what Charles is doing is, is – as as crappy as Brockmire can be as a person, and even though he is increasingly a non-functioning alcoholic, the fact is that Charles is able to to build a, a success for himself to the point where a sex worker uh, can outsmart both of them out of six hundred dollars, and uh, it barely faces them because they're doing so incredibly well. Uh, major props to the show for continuing uh, to treat sex workers with some level of respect. Most definitely. And that's the other thing I like about the show is they do treat sex workers with dignity. It's not a profession that they shame or put down and they're treated like real human beings. Uh, so that's also a, a nice positive aspect of the show. Um, and I do really agree with like the getting out of your hometown thing. So I've, I'm I, currently I live where I grew up, but I also it was really important to me when I did my undergraduate years is to go somewhere else 
experience life somewhere else, even if it was a few hours away and still in state. It's still a very different part of the state where I grew up, but I'm so glad I did because it really did open my perspective and my boundaries, and I'm really appreciative of that time. So that is important, and you mentioned the family dynamic. We get to see this dynamic with Charles at dinner. His father comes, uh, and he ha- he's very like military-like. He has two daughters who – basically like blink with his approval. It's very scary. You see his mother come and they still have like a weird sexual dynamic, her and her ex-husband. They're both Charles's parents and then nobody respects the her new husband. And they essentially try to guilt Charles into moving back home with his mother and taking care of her. And Brockmeyer, although he said he wouldn't, does end up interrupting the the awkward family dinner. Uh, and it turns out that one of the servers was that one night stand he had. But what matters most is that Brockmeyer really stands up for Charles in front of his family, you know, tells him how much of his success he's been, you know, in spite of the way he raised him and in spite of the way they screwed him up. Uh, and he also learns during this that the podcast made $600,000 last year. Uh, and then the episode ends with Brockmeyer giving Charles a new pair of the sneakers he ruined, even uh, getting Joe Buck using that connection to get them for him. So I like this a lot, even if Brockmeyer did the right thing or the wrong thing by interrupting the family dinner. Um, it was a great way for him to show that he does truly care about Charles, even if their dynamic is pretty messed up. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing that P- that you have to keep in mind is that even though Brockmeyer is shitty, I think he has a genuine love and care for Charles. And I think that, that's that's part of why their relationship and their dynamic works is that even though Brockmeyer can be shitty, there's still something there. And otherwise, it would just be a shitty guy being shitty, especially to a young black person. Uh, that would not be ideal uh, for this show. So they, they really do a good job of complicating that uh, as the uh, as the season goes on. And just the way that they set up the waiter, the server in this episode and have her come back a few episodes later. It's uh it's really funny. Like they they just, the show does a really good job of setting things up and, and always making sure uh, to pay them off. Even the sneaker thing is uh coming, comes back to. It sure does. And in episode three, we start, we meet a new character, Whitney, who's a PR person for the crawdaddy saying that Brockmeyer needs to be more likable and calls him a loaded gun. And this leads to maybe my favorite line of the entire series where Brockmeyer says, well, America loves loaded guns, especially little kids. That's the kind of dark humor I can get behind. Absolutely. Uh, if I mean, I don't know. Does America really love guns? Are we sure about that? I don't know. Uh, time will tell on that one, I guess. It's definitely not baked into our uh, into our DNA as a country. Certainly. I not. mean, my understanding is that we have the right to arm bears. Is that correct? Something like that. So, yeah, I mean, I don't see anything wrong with arming bears. I don't either. Rob, uh, I mean, I, they, they should have them more than humans, to be honest. Uh, so what what name do you like better? Do you like Crawdaddies or Frackers better? Crawdaddies. Also, I mean, you get the mascot, so I think that, that really improves it. And one of the things that's so fascinating, and you know that the show has no budget, so you have the mascot, but you never see, like, logos anywhere in the facilities and whatnot. And I don't know. So, Kevin, I, I, I know that you have not been to a lot of sporting events, but when you go to like a football game or baseball game, like their symbol and all that stuff, it is plastered everywhere in the stadium. So, oh, yeah, that's that's definitely something that I noticed. And um, the, the kind of the bare bones nature of the the uniforms and whatnot, that leads me to believe that uh, this uh, this show 
does not have much of a budget. Probably not. But I also understand that, yeah, you got to plaster that logo everywhere, get people deeply associated with the team, move those T-shirts, move those cups, move those bobbleheads, whatever you got to do. So Brock Meyer, after learning this news, tells Uribe they're going to have one last blowout weekend before he attempts to become more likable. We even see him soliciting a four-way on Twitter successfully. <laughs> and you get another uh, dynamic of Charles and uh, Brock Meyer as Brock Meyer and Uribe are having their four-way and they're taking a breather as Charles is editing the podcast in the background. But both of them kind of commiserate how they're maybe getting a little too old for baseball. And so now they're both trying to kind of find how they can stick around in, in baseball at this time. But I just I really enjoyed them talking. And then they reveal that Charles in the background editing the podcast this whole time. Yeah, it's uh, Charles has some very, very funny reaction shots throughout. And yeah, I mean, they're 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 older folks so they're trying to like find their purpose in life and i think that's something that again despite the cartoonish nature of the show sometimes i mean i think that that is a very real thing and what i what i really like is the way that they decide to kind of bring uribe back into baseball so there is this concept of the knuckleball and basically it's a weird pitch like podcasting is not a visual medium so i can't really so i'm going to do my best to describe it but basically Picture the way, like the way you would normally throw a baseball, like you would have your fingers like on the ball. And depending on like what kind of pitch you're going to throw, you're going to move your fingers around um, to reflect like what you want to do with the baseball. But with a knuckleball, you basically are putting like your finger, like it's like your fingernails are on the ball, like all four of your fingers and your thumb, like you have it. And the way the ball moves is so different. Like you can't predict where the ball is going to go when you throw a knuckleball. And uh, the reason that a lot of players will throw a knuckleball is it's so much less stressful on their arm. So when you throw a knuckleball, it's much more of a natural motion than when you're throwing a ball that's supposed to go 100 miles an hour. And it's a really hard ball to catch, too. So there are specific catchers that used to catch knuckleballers, and they would also use a bigger mitt because they literally don't know where the ball is going to go. So it's just fascinating that this very real baseball thing plays a factor into this episode. But it's very clear that the actor who plays Uribe can't throw a knuckleball because they never actually show him do it. They never show him do it, but we do get to see part of him doing uh, the five-knuckle shuffle back-to-back on the mound with Brockmeyer. they got to get rid of their Viagra boner somehow. I mean, it's a very different five-knuckle shuffle than Kevin and I are used to. Um, <laughs> hi, John Cena. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, it's uh, man, what what a, what a show where you can get a scene like this and it's just there and it's it's almost a throwaway. It comes back again. There's there's kind of a payoff to the joke later, uh, but yeah, this is something that happens and uh, they they both uh, achieve climax, so to speak. And I do love that again. You have Brock Meyer having to like um, commentate his own masturbating, having to, and then having to listen to Yuri Bay's awful sounds that he makes when he masturbates. And Brock Meyer also has to blackmail the coach into giving Yuri Bay a shot too uh, to be on the team. So this is how uh, the real world works, apparently. I mean, it's definitely how real sports works. I'm sure there's tons of black. I mean, maybe not this kind of blackmail, but I'm sure the politics plays a major role in sports. Right. Well, and it's good for Uribe that he has his thing to keep him in the game. But now Brockmeyer has to find what he calls his knuckleball. 
And at this time, Charles tells uh, Brockmire that all the science shows that he's well liked most during the eighth and ninth innings when he is at his most drunk. So naturally, the solution is for him to be drunk the entire game, but they have to be clever about it as booze is banned from the uh, the booth. And what could possibly go wrong here, Jerome? I mean, I don't think there's any possibility of anything going wrong because Brockmeyer knows how to drink in moderation and never never crosses that threshold, so to speak. Uh, what was your favorite uh, thing that he drank whiskey out of? Well, I don't know if it's my favorite thing, but the thing he has to do in, um, in moving forward, the, the, the only way because his plan works to see – uh, have him and Raj commentate a game together and see how successful they are. And he has to use a uh, alcohol t- uh, soaked tampon in his buttocks, which unfortunately I've heard real life situations of people doing that and it working uh, and sometimes for the female into their uh, genital area and having that obviously there's it wreaks havoc on your your lower parts, but it unfortunately works. So maybe that, but I also enjoy him uh, drinking out of uh, the the binoculars that comes up in the next episode. I think he drinks out of a shoe at one point. Uh, so they make so they get very clever with all the the ways that uh, he can get drunk in the booth and not get caught. I think the binoculars, just the visual of the binoculars, is my favorite. Yeah, it has to be. Uh, and Brock Meyer, because Uribe is playing the game, he has um, he decides to be professional with Raj and and keep things cordial. Uh, but then Uribe, after having a great game, decides that he's going to follow his lover to her fellowship at Cornell and is not staying with the Crawdads. And this really inspires Brock Meyer, seeing him follow his love, that he does, in fact, decide to go back to try to make amends with Jules, bringing her the basket that we saw in episode one, the special basket for the special someone. And after his apology and please take me back speech that she's uh, smiling and seemingly seems to work, she slams the door right in his face. So she keeps her word from the end of season one that you're going to come crawling back and I'm going to say no. And that was nice to see. A tremendous payoff to the ending of season one, as indeed she did live up to what uh, he he was going. He, he did live up to what she promised. So I like that. And then in episode four, Brockmeyer has to go back to his hometown because his father has passed and he is going to give a eulogy. And we learn that he uh, has a collection of eulogies at the ready just in case because he is an orator and he feels like there's something he has to do. He even has one written for Charles that he lets Charles read and Charles has moved to tears. So uh, a little grim to have all of these at the ready. But it's nice, I guess, that Charles got to read it while he was still alive and uh, be moved. And, and it goes to show that maybe Brockmeyer can write a damn good eulogy. I mean, I would definitely want him to write my eulogy, and I would want Dave Meltzer uh, to write my obituary. I think that's the dream, right? I Yeah, you're right. He does write a damn good obituary, whatever you else want to say about the man. So the one thing I will also say is so it's funny that they have this idea of Brockmeyer having these collection of eulogies because – like at journalistic institutions like the New York Times and Rolling Stone and things like that, they have obituaries written for a lot of celebrities. And, I've heard this. And it's so fascinating to me that this gets done because, you know, when somebody dies, you want to be able to post it immediately and you kind of want to just fill in the information at the beginning. I can't imagine what it's got to be like to write an obituary for somebody who hasn't died yet. And like, that's some bad juju going on. If you ask me, like, just imagine, especially if it's like for somebody young, like say someone like Britney Spears, who's had this very tragic life and you're writing an obituary. Like you, I bet you're just knocking on all the wood after that. 
yeah, if you're a very superstitious person, I imagine that is not something you're going to want to be doing. Like, just imagine updating Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter, who's like 95 years old, updating that obituary. Yeah. Wow. That that is something I haven't really thought about. But, yeah, that's uh, pretty twisted. It's uh, it's pretty twisted. But, yeah, episode four is a is a very unusual episode in that it kind of breaks the format a little bit because it's it's so focused on his family dynamic. And we see a lot of people uh, that we really haven't seen the rest of the show, uh, including his sister and uh, other family members. And we do get to see Lucy, of course. And I'm sure we'll get into that conversation they have a little bit later. But yeah, episode four is uh, is very different and uh, not the funniest of the eight episodes either. It's definitely got a much more serious tone. It does, and but I also think it speaks to what you were talking about, and that how much better his life was, Brockmire's life was, by leaving, because he sees his sister, who's played by the wonderful Becky Ann Baker, uh, who played Gene Weir in Freaks and Geeks, uh, which I love that she has the same name about these shows. She's a closeted homosexual with a mute husband, and uh, she's miserable, and it's because she feels like she's in a town where she couldn't be accepted, and her past and all these other things. And it's really hard to, to see her have to go through all of that. And, you know, Lucy is still there and obviously she has her own bag of issues to, to work out, but she's there for Jim in, in some ways that are less appropriate than others, you know, insinuating she'd have sex with him, but that would cheer him up. And Jean even tells Brockmire that, you know, only the preacher speak at his funeral because she doesn't think their father deserves a eulogy. And I guess her father left letters for all the people in his life to say goodbye to. And, uh, Jim reads his letter and it is apparently pretty harsh. We don't get to hear it anything, but the reactions from, from him and Lucy when reading it, uh, tell you the severity of it. So, but it's also Lucy who gives Brockmire the words of encouragement to give a more honest eulogy about his father. And it's a, it's a great moment for the series. You see him kind of making better amends with the people in his life. Like him and Lucy leave on good terms, but they, they don't have sex or anything, but they seem to be doing Okay. And even him and his sister hold hands in the episode. They're not ready for a hug yet, but you get to see that. So, yeah, definitely a, a more sad episode of Brockmire. But it, it, I think it's nice to take him back to his ho- hometown so you could see exactly what he escaped. I mean, we had some allusions to the complicated nature of Brockmire's relationship with his father. So I think it's good to kind of come back to that for this episode and have the father actually die. Uh, we don't really hear a lot about Brockmire's mother, um, but that's something that we may or may not hear about in future seasons and kind of continue to explore this. Uh, Becky Ann Baker is a tremendous character actor. She is somebody who's, you mentioned Freaks and Geeks. Uh, she was on Girls. Uh, she's been on so many of the shows and movies. And uh, she is she is so great in every single one of them. And it's funny, but is able to be serious. And yeah, I think she was the perfect choice because she's so much less bombastic than Brock Meyer, but is still able to be caustic and sarcastic. Yeah. I, I just, I really liked her performance in this episode. Um, I am really glad that Lucy and Brock Meyer did not have sex because I feel like that is a trope that has been done so much in movies and TV shows where uh, a, for, an, uh, a couple that was broken up. They have sex after a funeral. I mean, it's something that's happened in like high fidelity is the first thing that comes to mind. So it's, it's well, it's war torn territory at this point. So I'm really glad that the catharsis that they have is emotionally and not physically. I think that's a, that's a good thing. And the, the person that they cast 
to pl- to play Gene's husband. I mean, it's it was it's so perfect. He doesn't say a word, but he just looks like the kind of person that has just completely had the soul ripped out of them over the course of their many years on this planet. One hundred percent. And going back to the Lucy thing, you know, I, I praise this show for subverting expectations and your typical television tropes in season one. And as we see here, it carries on to season two as well. And episode five is maybe my favorite of the season, but it's it it's called a makeup game, but it could be called uh, Brockmire fucks up things with Jules again. Because Jules comes to New Orleans. She has a layover from a business flight to come and see Jim's uh, podcast. And, she, and the reason why she also came is because she read about Jim dying and it made her realize that life is too short to hold a grudge. This is sort of a callback to the to Lucy in the other episode who said she has a Google alert for Jim Brockmeyer dies and it came up when his dad uh, died and same thing for Jules. And it makes him realize, oh, wow, a lot of people have this uh, Google search in my life, which is very funny. So they, they catch up and admit to seeing other people, so on and so forth. But uh, things – they they seem like they oh and, and Charles comes and sees them and kind of awkwardly hopes they reconcile. And away they do. They go on this bender. Jim brings Jules back to a hotel. He has permanently to bring back, quote, strange, so he can fuck without Charles' judgment if he needs to. And but he also tells Jules that their connection is the most profound thing he's ever had. And this works on Jules. She's working to cancel her flight, but at the same time, Jim gets a call saying that he's got the job in Atlanta. And he's planning to leave right away, but delays to stick around with Jules. And what it boils down to was Jules says, once again, I feel like, you know, we were getting back together and things were going great. And I was getting used to maybe having this split life between New Orleans and Morristown, you know, coming to New Orleans in the off season of the team and, and such. And here we are again. You have the chance to make things right with me and you're taking the new profession instead. And so what's the point? And she leaves. And I think it's interesting that you have this moment where Brockmire is able to reconcile things with Jules, the one person he says that he had this most profound experience, you know, feelings for, and he fucks it up again for his professional baseball life. Yeah, this is a, there's a very tragic quality to this episode that I don't think you really get with a lot of others in that. Yes, there's still jokes and it's still very funny, but everything with Jules and, and Brockmire feels so fraught and, it's uh, it's kind of depressing because these two people, I mean, the dynamic that they have and the way they walk around New Orleans and they really – this is one of the rare times that we actually see them outside amongst the city. I don't know if they actually shot this in New Orleans because I my understanding is that most of the show is shot in Georgia. So you don't really get that specific New Orleans flavor that I think you get with shows like – with a show like Treme, which – very clearly shot in New Orleans for most of it. And you saw the dynamics of Bourbon Street and things like that. You don't really get that. And I think it's it's kind of a lost opportunity, um, but obviously understandable for budgetary reasons. But I think they do just enough here to get across the idea that these two, despite all of their flaws as human beings, kind of good for each other. And there is a there is a connection beyond just, you know, having sex and fucking. I mean, that's, that's clearly what this episode is getting across to that. It's not just about them having sex. It's about them forming a real connection. And the fact that brought Meyer in, it seems like is almost in denial of this and wants things a specific way. And like, it's, it's, it's very fraught, especially after going through what he did uh, with his father. I mean, I think it's one of those things where, 
you know, after going what he went through with his own family, like, I'm sure there's a part of him that just kind of wants to cut the cord and be like, you know, I'm not going to start a family because of what I went through. And I would never want to put my children through this. So I think there's a lot of fraught aspects to uh, the family dynamics. So, yeah, that's something that gets explored a lot in this episode. And the one thing I will say for Jules, look, I completely understand her decision to leave. I think she is justified. And I think the show is on her side. I think that's that's the best thing is that this show is constantly willing to undermine Brockmeyer and not take his side. And this is obviously a, kind of a, the start of a downward spiral, spiral for Brockmeyer that takes us basically uh, through the rest of the season. But the one thing that Jules, uh, the biggest mistake she made was not staying around for the beignet. Uh, that's that's a major error. And how do you, how do you leave and and not take your beignet, Kevin? I mean, heinous. Well, I think it's a great metaphor for the whole episode. You say, well, you can't leave without having a beignet. And because this things get fucked up, and she leaves, and she doesn't have a beignet, it almost feels like there's an un. Uh, there isn't that closure quality to it at, at all because she did, she didn't have her beignet, and I think that's a uh, very profound. Uh, in in such a delicious food, but you're right; those are those are delicious. She should have stuck around and ate it at least. But the way the episode ends is Jim goes on this nihilistic rant at the local bar, which leads to a woman at the bar, played by Carrie Preston, to stab a passed out patron and give Jim a business card and tells Jim to call her when he's ready to go down the rabbit hole. Uh, so hold on to that for the time being. So we're just a couple away, a couple months away from the Matrix coming out. So I feel like the rabbit hole thing is just coming all the way back around again. Good point. Good point. Uh, is he going to take the red pill or the blue pill? Well, he's going to take all the pills is what it comes down and to. If, and naturally, of course, you will be shocked to know, Kevin, that there are certain people that have completely misinterpreted the Matrix and believe that taking the red pill means that they are QAnon and whatnot. Oh, I've I seen know you're surprised. I, even though I've now seen the Wachowski sisters tell off your Ivanka Trumps and whatnot about the red pill, uh, they still don't get it. And they also don't understand that the Matrix could very easily be written as a, as a metaphor for transitioning to becoming another gender. But I think I think they even said it flat out was. And even if they wrote it with, uh, subconsciously not knowing that, that's kind of what they've stated it, it sort of is now. I mean, and that's fine. It's it's You're not QAnon because you take a quote-unquote red pill. Yeah, that, that's ri- ridiculous. Anyway. What's, what, what's even more ridiculous but also maybe the best part of the season is the montage that opens episode six – with Jim being a very sore winner about getting this new job, flipping off Raj, flipping off the girl who wouldn't let eat his ass or eat her ass, flipping off the crawdad, flipping off his critics at his podcast show to a, a, a to a roar of, of cheers and applause to people who were being negative to him online because God damn it, he's a major league broadcaster now. This is this is a, a very aspirational thing I think for all of us that we want to do when we quit our jobs. I think the way that they set it up at first, like he talks to Raj and he has this seemingly nice cordial conversation and says that he has something for Raj and then pulls out the middle fingers and it just leads to this montage. It kind of reminded me of the montage. Of the, it's not a one for one, but it reminded me of Jay and Silent Bob at the end of uh, at the end of their movie when they're going to kick various kids asses. It kind of reminded me of that. Just the tone, the humor, the vindictiveness of it all. Uh, so I really love this opening scene, and I love the fact that he is literally holding the cage against the mascot. <laughs> yes, that's so great. 
you know, the best part is that we never actually see who the person is that is the mascot. That's the best part to me. 100%. Like, we don't know who that person is. Like, it's just a random person. I'm hoping it's it's probably some random dude, and it's just hilarious. Well, we well we do get to see it in the next episode. That's the payoff. Oh, right. Yes, yes. But it's But I like to think that during the course of their feud, Jim has never seen the mascot outside of the mascot costume ever. Yeah. And I mean, again, it comes back to this idea of setup and payoff that they are setting up this mascot. And then all along, it's it's a lady. Yes. <laughs> Let's throw it out there now. And then it's great when we see in the next episode. But for now, Jim is going to go to Atlanta to call the last game of the season with Art Newley, the legendary broadcaster who's leaving as sort of a passing the torch moment. But just before this, Deanna catches his hidden alcohol stash because she picks up the binoculars to actually use them and gets a bunch of uh, alcohol poured into her eyes, which has to be abhorrently painful. And she she makes it very clear to Jim that he can't have any alcohol in the booth. And what makes it even worse for Jim is that Charles is going to be there because he's staying behind to tend to uh, podcast meetings, as he calls them. But he does agree to fly to Atlanta to get him settled and then fly back immediately. Uh, And he has to do this game sober. That's just the way it works. So he doesn't fuck up things for himself. And that's going to be a major challenge for Jim, as we will see. The idea of Botmeyer sober, I mean, would it's that's it's a really hard thing for him to do. And again, I think we're kind of in the midst of this this downward spiral, and this episode gets into it even more because, like in the previous episode, he really messes up his personal life. And clearly, what they're setting up in episode six is the fact that they are going to uh, mess up his professional life because at this point, we're in episode six. There's still two episodes left in the season. And the fact that this kind of payoff is happening would seemingly lead you to believe this is almost like the season finale. But the fact that it isn't kind of tips you off that things are going to go in weird directions. And uh, again, I love the fact that Char- they're clearly setting some things up for uh, for Charles. And uh, I, I really appreciated that. And uh, Whitney kind of gets short shrift in the series overall, uh, but her performance in this episode is is particularly striking. Absolutely. Jim actually gets a little bit of a reprieve from how he's going to handle his lack of alcohol because in the booth, Art, who's played by Phil Reeves, uh, he's done kind of one shots on a bunch of television series. I remember him from an episode of The Office, but he was given a bottle of uh, booze that he wants to share with Jim in the booth. And even though Jim insists over and over again, he doesn't want to, he ends up sharing part of it. But uh, the one really sweet thing is before Charles leaves, he gives Jim this sneaker that apparently has been in the booth for every single game they've called together. So it's like having a little piece of Charles in the booth with him for the game uh, that he's not going to be with him. Oh, and I guess it's worth mentioning that Charles is not going to Atlanta with him. Uh, Jim, Jim thinks he is, but it comes up a little bit later that art won't let that happen uh, because Art is a big racist. He even calls Charles a colored, says they almost put a sand jockey in a seat referring to Raj. And he also asked Jim to sit out his final inning so he can call it by himself, uh, which is fine with Jim because he's now experiencing withdrawal shakes. Uh, and then he runs into Whitney during this part who she's now drunk, but also tells Jim that the only reason he got the job is because Art insisted a white man take his mantle. So, Jim may be a lot of bad things, but he is not racist, and he is horrified to hear all of these things about art. The 
I, I love the fact that they have explored Charles much more in this season, kind of representing who he is as a person in total and not just as Jim's sidekick, because it really just wallops you when art is so blatantly racist. And this is a show that really didn't have to explore the dynamics of racism in this country, but I think this episode probably does a better job than a lot of other shows at exploring this dynamic. And it's not just because of the fact that Brockmire defends Charles, but the conversation that they have later on where Charles yells at Brockmire for actually defending him because of what Charles has had to go through his entire life. And I think it's one of those things where this is something that is kind of boiled beneath the surface, but I mean, they bring it to the forefront. The fact that Charles is is a black person in this country trying to find success for himself. And the end of this episode is the realization of that. The fact that he is going to move away from Brockmire and all the money that he has made from podcasting, he's going to transfer it over into creating his own media company uh, where it is going to be podcasting by people of color for people of color. And of course, the, the one white person just because he's cool. But the fact that they do that and then they have the scene with Brockmire and with Charles kind of talking this out and the fact that Brockmire, even though he was defending Charles, like he was still wrong to do that because like they put Charles in the public. He put Charles in the public eye unwittingly, just like what Brockmire did to his wife. So there's kind of that similarity going on. And that even though Brockmire is trying to do the right thing, he was still kind of wrong for doing so. And again, this is part of his self-destructive nature. And the fact that these two, there is a kind of a healthy respect going on between the two, like in the end, like they're on very different paths. Brockmire is on this path of self-destruction and Charles even is, is making something of himself. So I really liked that this is kind of the the payoff to the dynamic that they had been setting up for the first uh, six episodes. And uh, Kevin, I guess art uh, art is the realization of the Confederate. Yes, very similar, very similar. But it's nice to see that Jim takes him to task for his racism on the air. It's unfortunate that it cost Jim his job. Also very unfortunate that it costs Whitney her job because someone has to be the scapegoat. But here's something that I wanna that I wanna ask about because my presumption is this is real because there's a lot of uh, superstition in sports. But during the game, the Atlanta team is on uh, on their way to a no hitter, and then Jim mentions a no hitter during the broadcast, and it and it flubs it. They don't have a no hitting game. I have to imagine this is a real thing. Like if something like this is happening, the broadcaster doesn't mention it or you're jinxing the fact that it just might happen. Or is this is this an old superstition? Is this even a superstition? I have to imagine there's a lot of things like this in sports. It is definitely something that is based in reality, but the rules have le- have the rules have opened up considerably because of social media and the fact that like you're not going to pretend otherwise that a no hitter isn't happening on Twitter. Like you're going to say so and so is pitching a no hitter, perfect game, go watch MLB Network or whatever to 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 finish it. So it is kind of a real thing, but it definitely over the last few years is not something that plays as much of a factor. Someone like Art though because he's older 
that is definitely plausible that he would not be the type of person to mention the no hitter. And I know that it is definitely something that some fans are still like something you still don't talk about. Um, but yeah, I mean the no, no hitters and perfect games are kind of the coolest things in sports because like the idea of being perfect and not allowing a hit or even a base runner, like that's something that you just, no other sport has that dynamic. So that is part of what makes baseball special. And anytime that there is a no hitter, it is a big deal. And um, like if you go to the baseball hall of fame, they have the final baseballs thrown for every no hitter and perfect game uh, since the beginning of baseball, basically. So like, that's how special it is. That's how important it is. And yeah, it's only happened uh, a handful of times over the course of the hundred year history. Like typically in a baseball season, you will maybe get like one perfect game and like maybe one or two other no hitters. So it is a big deal. And it's really funny that as soon as he mentions no hitter, that hit happens, that is the perfect payoff to this. And, uh, yeah, so I really like the that dynamic. And uh, the guy they cast to play Art Newley uh, did a great job, too. He is definitely he is definitely playing that type of person extremely well. And in baseball, Kevin, you'll be shocked to know there are a lot of people who maybe they're not as blatantly racist, but they will definitely talk about like players like showing off or wearing mm-hmm. too much jewelry or like being too bombastic and whatnot because bat flipping is kind of a controversial thing because you're kind of showing up. Bat flipping is great. The higher, the better I say. Someone explained to me a while ago around sports, like how there's coded language for how they talk about players of all races and stuff. Like the only one I can remember off the top of my head is like a Latin player being called the firecracker. There are lots of stuff like that. Sometimes it's not as coded, but yeah, it's a, there's like a whole language of stuff that people notice when you're talking about players of specific, uh, you know, backgrounds and ethnicities and colors and whatnot. There is weird coded language that just happens to be used in a lot of that. So we're calling an Asian picture sneaky. That's something that mm-hmm. is definitely uh, something that has happened. Um, there was there was an infamously like I think it was either a Sports Illustrated article or something, but like an Asian basketball player, they said like something about the chink in the armor and like. Obviously, no one gave that a second thought, and it was like, holy shit, did you really publish this without thinking? Yeah, Um, Jeremy Lin, Jeremy Lin. I mean, that was a huge deal. Like, people definitely lost their jobs because of it. So you definitely have to think about the language that you're using, um, especially because of these stereotypes. And, like, questioning a player's effort when they're a minority, that's a big thing. Um, like what very often happens is that you'll have like, there's a term in baseball, like grinder where, you know, players who quote unquote try really hard, but aren't very athletic. Uh, those are generally like short, like white players. So it's, it's definitely thing, especially in baseball because of the history and because the fact is that baseball is so diverse and you have like in basketball, football, so many of the players are black so, yes, there is racism in those sports, too, but I think it's very different. With baseball, it's so much more pronounced because a lot of the announcers are white um, and many of the players are Latinx or African-American. So that's what happens. Right. And there, and a lot of these like institutions of commentary are really old. And so they just it, – it's almost like it's not even it, – there may be a stubbornness to change, but sometimes – People say things and they just they don't they don't mean it one way, but obviously like the the times have passed them by and it's not great. 
And the fact that Brockmeyer, despite his abhorrent behavior, is more progressive than someone like Art. I mean, that just speaks to how backwards baseball is. Totally. Moving on from that, you mentioned like Charles has started his new podcast company by people of color for people of color called Gradient. Again, he was expecting that Jim was gone from New Orleans, so he's transformed his loft into this podcast studio. And when Jim comes back, it gets him into an argument, and Charles ends up asking him to leave because it is his place. And episode seven starts with uh, a hilarious quote from Brock Meyer. He says he's at his most problematic before he's had coffee, uh, which is the same for me, which is why I've had several cups of coffee before this uh, podcast. You're welcome, America. So Brockmire's been in this cycle of waking up in strange places, and he ends up in the hospital with two forms of chlamydia, liver failure, blunt force trauma, and even scurvy. I used to make a joke that my roommate, when he'd go to the gym, he'd sweat so much. His, so- he would, his socks would be so sweaty that he was going to get trench foot, like this really old thing that doesn't exist anymore. And scurvy is so rare that they're having a lot of the people in the hospital – witness him because they're never going to get a chance to witness scurvy in anyone else because it just doesn't happen to anybody anymore. Yeah. Pat Meyer's not doing very well. He is on a, he is on a downward spiral and he is very close to hitting rock bottom. Right. I mean the doc, so Charles is there and they literally, and they tells him that his body is literally shutting down. And if he doesn't stop drinking, he will die. Cut to Brock Meyer walking out of the hospital with a champagne bottle from someone else's room. I don't even know how you sneak alcohol into the hospital, but if anybody's going to find a way, Brockmeyer is. Well, it, they they say he steals it like from another room because like someone brought a bottle of champagne as like a gift or something to somebody who maybe who knows they just beat some disease or had a successful surgery, and he went and stole it. Um, but this results in Charles learning this news that if he doesn't stop drinking, die to try to hold an intervention. And he brings Gene, Lucy, Raj, and Uribe together for an intervention at the bar. And uh, Brockmeyer cuts it and says, sure, maybe the eighth time will be the charm. And Joe Buck even Skypes in mid-broadcast. And uh, Jim decides that he will stay as a favor to Charles. And maybe the best moment of them reading their letters is Raj giving a double middle finger and an FU to Jim's face that he was just hired by Milwaukee as a major league broadcaster. And this behavior ends up winning Jim over. And we talk about how Raj, like he needs to be liked by everybody. So being a jerk to Brockmeyer wins him over and that's his way of getting him to like him. And it's very funny. It's a very like tense moment at first, but then Jim realizes what's going on. And it breaks the tension. It's all, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a great payoff to the Raj character and the fact that he is able to find success as a broadcaster and just what, a, what a great moment this was. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, so Joe Buck is Skyping in. He is, he is in the middle of a baseball broadcast. So the funny thing is, so do, did you hear the to- about the Tom Brenneman story, Kevin? No. Okay, so Tom Brenneman was a broadcaster for the Cincinnati Reds. And I'm actually going to demand that after we record, Kevin, that you look this up. So Tom Brenneman is doing the Cincinnati Reds broadcast. And while the the, mocks, the mics are hot, but they're not on the air, he uses an, a, a, an epithet uh, towards homosexual people. And it gets heard by everyone. And it immediately goes super viral on Twitter to the point where by the middle of the game, he literally steps away and stops doing the game. Like literally this happened in the middle of a game. So he is trying to apologize, but amidst the apology, the game is still going on. And this player named Nick Castellanos hits a home run. So in the middle of his apology, he calls a home run. You need, you need to find the video of this because it is genuinely something that you would expect to see out of this show. Brockmire. That's incredible. I definitely 
need to watch this. So that that's what this reminded me of because Joe Buck is literally in the middle of a broadcast and this is all going on. But it's it's just one of those things like it's such a baseball thing to happen to. And what I love is that Jim is, of course, secretly drinking during the intervention because he can't help himself. And again, what, again, we talk about the tropes and breaking them. But Jim even calls out a trope. He's like, you obviously know this is only going to work if you brought in Jules as a closer. So let's get to it, Jules. Come on out. And Charles says that she declined to attend, knowing that this wouldn't work. And Jim himself goes on a rant, pointing out how everyone in the room has their own addictions. But he ends up softening when he finally gets to Charles, because that speaks to their relationship. And Charles, however, just ends up leaving in silence. And one thing I love is this is I think this is a great quote that encapsulates Brockmeyer is when Jean and Lucy are talking and she says, or Jean says to Lucy, that's the worst thing about Jim. He's always a little bit right. Yeah, I mean, the, this, they nail the Brockmeyer character. Like, yes, he is a very flawed human being, but he is also really good at seeing the flaws in other people. And I think that's his observational nature, the fact that he, he's a baseball announcer. So he's very clearly good at observing things and using a, a good vocabulary. So, of course, he's going to be able to see things in other people extremely well. And, I, I mean, that's part of why he's – it also kind of makes him blind to his to his own issues, and it's uh it's it's a really kind of a heartbreaking scene. But it's um it's the the moment with Charles, I think, is is one of the more powerful ones because like we've seen this journey throughout the season, and even though it's not a romantic love in the same way that Jules and Brockmeyer is, like. In some ways, this one is even more meaningful because it's more platonic and the the payoff is going to be much more emotional than with Jules. Totally. But even before we get to that, the crawdad who was invited for whatever reason comes in and it's a college aged female. Big pop in this household for that reveal. A chef's kiss. What a payoff. <laughs> what a payoff. So, yeah, then you get a really emotional conversation with Charles and Jim where Charles – Full stop says, unless you get sober, our relationship is over. Professionally, personally, it's done. And Jim is, admits that he's scared to get sober because obviously we know that people apparently like him better when he's drunk, even though all the bad things in his life have happened because of drinking. So of all the good things, even the foundation of his relationship with Jules was based on him being drunk. But Charles says he hopes to meet the sober Jim one day. It gives him a, a business card to a rehab facility and says, everything's set up for you there. You just need to call and, and you'll be admitted. And Ch- Jim just throws some really harsh things at Charles as Charles walks away saying his parents are right about him, that he's selfish and he's destined to fail. But Jim obviously has like this immediate regret about him once Charles is out of sight. And he makes a phone call and we learn that, oh no, it wasn't to the rehab facility it's from the Redhead's house from episode five who said, you know, give me a call when you're ready to go down the rabbit hole. And he immediately gets high with her as the episode ends. So uh, and, and I think he puts it perfectly in the next episode when he says something like uh, or no, it's the end of this episode where he says when you get a lot of people telling you to stop, eventually you just want to go to the person who gives you the green light. And that's what this person is to him. Uh, L becomes her name. But. Yeah, that's a nice little fake out because it's been a couple episodes, so you kind of forget about it. But you think he's calling the rehab facility, but no, he's calling uh, L, who is a major enabler of all the things that Jim wants to do. Yeah, I mean, Bro- Brockmeyer is about to hit rock bottom, or I guess you could say Brock bottom in this case, right? It's, it's one of those things where, like, going into the finale, I had no idea, like, what they were going to do because this could go in a lot of dire- different directions. None of them 
in my mind, positive. But the fact that, you know, we've gotten to this point where where Jim is no longer talking to Charles or Jules, the only person in his life is this person, L. Uh, this kind of reminded me of BoJack Horseman in a way. I, have you watched all Bo- BoJack, Kevin? I don't know if I've seen the latest season, but I've seen most, if not all of it. So there's a plot line. I'm not going to spoil it. It's very similar to this one. Both Brotmeyer and BoJack are kind of at their lowest point, and they're with a person that is really enabling them. Brotmeyer, it ends a little better. I mean, it's it's not great what happens in episode eight, but it's it's a little bit better in that L doesn't die. But it's uh, it's it's real dark times, and yeah, the beginning of episode eight is Brockmeyer's rock bottom, and there's almost no place to go but up at that point, and. Yeah, it's just been – this is a much darker season than the first one. You know, the first season is very much like this underdog sports story. But the second season is an exploration of, of Brockmeyer as an alcoholic and, like, dealing with the ramifications of that and holding him accountable. Like, the people in his life are holding him accountable for his shitty behavior. Like, the fact that he has gone through what he's gone through does not give him an excuse to be a shitty person, to Raj, to the Crawdaddy mascot, to Charles, to Jules, to anybody else in his life. And I think that's an important message of this show, and it's something that we are going to come back to uh, when we record and talk about seasons three and four, like holding Brockmire accountable for his shitty behavior. And like, how is he going to respond? Is he going to just be a drunk? Is he just going to continue doing drugs? Or is he going to try to fix himself and make himself whole again? Yeah, and it, you see him just basically going all out, smoking crack, drinking, having sex, doing horrible things in public with Elle, taking mystery pills he finds in his shirt, and his sobering moment is when she wants to play Russian roulette, shoots herself in the head, and you realize, or Jim realizes that all the chambers were loaded. Um, and she survives and gets taken to the hospital, and one thing Brockmeyer wants to know is if her being alive, if she feels relief or regret, and she says that he doesn't deserve to know, and that all these pain that he experiences and stuff that he kind of makes, not even makes up, but just she feels like she experiences real pain where Brock Myers is very mental. And it's just like, you're doing all this because your wife cheated on you and this and that. And it's like, maybe you think you're in real pain, but there's a lot of other people out there who are in real deep pain that Jim. And I, I think this is kind of unfair. I don't like in people in life when they talk about how their pain is more meaningful or this than other people. I don't think that's right. But it does seem to work on Jim, who realized a lot of his pain is maybe, um, you know, all, all in his head, so to speak. And when you really lay it out bluntly, maybe things aren't so bad. And he's sort of using he's hanging on to these things as an excuse for his bad behavior. Yeah, I mean, he's a shitty person. And I think we've seen shows that have explored shitty dudes. Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Sopranos. I'm sure there's a hundred other shows where you could talk about the lead white male is just a shitty person and you go with this kind of anti-hero model. But I think what you don't often see on those shows is real accountability. I mean, to an extent, I think Breaking Bad had it a little bit, but in this case, it's not just a matter of he's going to go in the woods and hide from everyone. And Robert Forrester is going to come visit him every few months. Like at this point, like he's got to be really accountable so that Charles can be in his life. So that Jules can be back in his life. So the direction that they go in is definitely something that if you would ask me at the beginning of season two, I never thought that we would have ended up in this place. 
No, not at all. But I'm glad we got here. And I, it, it takes, I think, Jim being with someone like L to realize like how fucked up things are. But they also break the tension when like the pills that Jim took turn out to be MDMA. And he just starts like dancing in the middle of the lobby when he's talking to whoever it is, you know, L's brother or something like that uh, talks about how, you know, she used to be the CEO of a company and this is her fifth time she's done something like this. And, you know, he witnesses that he's helping her take a drink of water in bed. And I think Jim starts to realize, like, I may not have anybody in my life like this. And this cuts us to one year later where Jim is now an employee at the Sober Unity's clean living facility, the same place that Charles told him to go. And he is living a sober life. And Charles comes to visit Jim for the first time, and Jim had not told Charles that he was sober, so Charles figured it out on his own. And this is when Charles tells Jim for the first time that he loves him. And that's a call back to a few episodes ago where Charles tells – or Jim tells Charles he loves him, and Charles is like, eh, you're more than just the boss to me. But this obviously gets to Jim, and he cries, and he mentions that being sober, he cries a lot more now. Um, a little bit mind-blowing to see Jim sobered up at first. I mean, it's not quite Avengers Endgame when the five years later came up, but I would imagine it like threw you off like one year later. Like, what the hell happened? Yeah, exactly. Like you said, it's like a it's a good thing about the show where like their lives go on living. But it's interesting that we don't see Jim go through the process of getting sober. We just jump in your head and he is. Yeah, which I mean, you could probably have done an entire season on him getting sober it probably would not be funny. <laughs> That's the problem. Like it, this would cease to be a comedy at that point. If you showed Jim getting sober, I think they also realized like, look, we've got eight half hour episodes. We got to cut some things here. People have seen a person get sober in, t- in television and movies over and over again. We really don't need to see that again. Yeah. I mean, I think this episode it's, it's a really fascinating way to end the season because you're, you're, you are ending in a completely different place because you're ending in a place where Brock Meyer is sober. He's not drinking anymore. He's been sober very clearly for a year at this point. So yeah, it's, it's, it really sets up like what's going to happen now. Like what does sober Brock Meyer look like? And he's going to, he gets another job. I love the line um, where they talk about why Jim is able to get another opportunity and Carl says white privilege, which yep. just just chef's kiss on that one. Uh, just absolutely great. And the fact that they reintroduced Jules back into the equation and her taking uh, the sip out of the flask while they're watching the sunset. Uh, that was uh, that was pretty great. <laughs> the look that Jim gives her too. <laughs> She's like, what? If you expect me to get a place as depressing as this, you can't expect me to do it sober. But yeah, I also love that it's Art's job that he's taking over for again as a fill-in announcer in Oakland and that he says that it was because Art was caught putting cameras in the women's restroom in his restaurant chain, which got him canceled. And uh, people weren't as concerned that he was paying black people in those restaurants 30 percent less, which again – Isn't that the just the way? Like sure. that is – like – so, OK. This is this is a bit loaded, but this is like with, uh, with the Andrew Cuomo re- resignation in New York. Like, he resigned because of sexual harassment, which is terrible, which is awful. Don't get me wrong. But he's also responsible for thousands of deaths in nursing homes. So it's like the way that this country is calibrated in so many ways is very unusual to me because, again, the behavior is abhorrent. But, like, there's also other societal issues that we should be paying attention to as well. And this show, oddly enough, gets that right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So, yeah, but I just found that very interesting. They're very honest about like, yeah, the reason you get so many chances after fucking up so much is because you're white. And there's too many examples I can think of out there, but uh, this is not the podcast for that. Name name 500. Mm, I could probably name 501. But getting to uh, Jim and Jules. So Jules is going to be the person to bring him to Oakland and get him settled. They have a really nice conversation in private because uh, and Jim lives on the, the 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 grounds of the facility, and she kind of jokingly asks like you know if you went through the twelve step process of AA why did I never get my apology? She's like that's the best part about being friends with alcoholics is getting this apology, and he says that you know part of that is if if part of your apologies is reopening old wounds you're not supposed to do that, and he was afraid to do that with Jules, and he tells her that the moments he's beat himself up over is all the times he walked away from her apologizing. You're going to be a better man and that she will always be his biggest regret. And if there's anything he can do to make it up to her to let him know, and it seems like a perfect lead in for sex, but Jules just kisses him on the floor and says they need to get ready for Oakland. So nice to see that there was no taking advantage of each other in this very vulnerable state being adults about this. Um, you know, maybe we'll see what happens with them in seasons three and four, uh, but like you said, they end the episode watching the sunset. Charles, Jules, and uh, Jim all do that. Uh, and I also love that they complain how boring a sunset is. And I also love that uh, Jules asked what kind of got him to be sober. And he says that he wanted to undo all the damage he'd done. And he knew the only way to do that was to become sober. And just dying would only make things worse. And Jules says, I was betting it was heroin. I mean, it's it's totally fair that that's what you would bet on, given his behavior. Mike Ehrmantraut, spoiler for Breaking Bad, he died at a sunset, right? So it's funny that we're talking again about a sunset. And in this case, Brockmire does not want to die in peace. I am very fascinated to see if Brockmire is able to maintain his sobriety two seasons more. If I were a betting man, I'd say no, just because that makes for the more interesting show. But who's to say? Um but over your overall thoughts on season two. Yeah, I, I like season two much more on a second watch than I did the first time. And that's not to say that I ever thought season two was bad. Season two is just a very different animal from season one. Season one, again, is this underdog sports story where you have like a clear beginning, middle and end. And I think that it, it's not quite formulaic in the way of a sports movie, but there is definitely a clear structure that they are observing. So you have a logical endpoint. With this season, it's one of those things like if you had told me at the beginning of the season we were going to end up in rehab, I would have said, uh, how? And the way they structure it, the way they laid out, it's very good because they keep taking things away from Brockmeyer, they really explore and build the relationship between Charles and Brockmeyer, which I think is really important because you have the one year that we don't see in New Orleans, plus all the time in the individual episodes. So we know that their dynamic has been built up and you have just enough jewels to, to keep her a part of Brockmeyer's life and to create some drama there. Plus Brockmeyer's father dying is kind of a loaded thing. I'm sure that undoubtedly has affected his decision to become sober and uh, and kind of the behavior, kind of the rock bottom that he hits with L. So this was a very good season of television in the fact that they are able to maintain the tone so incredibly well. And it is not easy for a show like this that is so short. I mean, these episodes are only 20 minutes long. 
it's 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 a very weird dynamic, and I think that they're able to achieve it so well. This is a this is a very strongly written show, and that's the thing that impresses me so consistently is just the writing of it and the specificity and the fact that they get so many things about baseball right, but they also get kind of life things right too. And the idea of making amends and just all that, um, I think that they're able to to do that really well. And even though I, I think season one, I think in some ways, I think season one is more enjoyable Season two is probably the better season just because it is trying to explore this dynamic of what happens when Brockmire is actually held accountable and is going to try to be a better person now. Yeah, and that's I think um, I think that's perfectly perfect way to do it. Season one, I think, is maybe a more enjoyable watch, even though season two is probably the better show from a story perspective. And something else that you pointed out that I really liked was it wasn't just one big thing. That got to Jim deciding to be sober. He loses his father. He loses Jules. Then he loses his new job while also losing his old job. Then he has the intervention where he ends up losing Charles and his podcast. And then he has this profound moment with Elle where she shoots herself in the head and he sees in the hospital that she's had all these fuck ups in his life. And he still has somebody there who loves him and is there to care for her. And he realizes if this happens to me, I don't have anyone and I don't have even my profession that I've kind of lost all these people for. And that's what gets him to get sober. So I'm really glad it wasn't like a, oh, in one episode, this one big thing happens and it gets there. It's the culmination of all these things in his life that he's lost and screwed up for himself. That gets him to that point on top of seeing you rebay with his, uh, his new woman and getting his what 14th, 15th kids. That to me is just the sign of a really good show. They don't rush things. They subvert your expectations and still get to a logical, satisfying place. It's just such a, a, a great show. And it's a, it, it's a shame. It doesn't get more love than it does. And we've still got two whole more seasons to go. And I'm really interested to see where we go from here. Of course, I know how this is all going to pay off, but it's going to be, Season three is is very different from season two as much as season two is different from season one. And I'm, I, I don't really want to explain why. I mean, we're, of course, going to find out very shortly. But, um, yeah, season three is just a very different show because you have Jim trying to be sober and you have this new dynamic again. They're in a new city again. They're not in Morristown. They're not in New Orleans. They're in Oakland, which is a little bit more it's it's a very different place being on the west coast too um and uh some new characters that we have to look forward to as well um so yeah that's uh that's brockmeyer and we will be back of course in november covering season three of the show but in the meantime i advise you to go to enterthegreerworld.com to listen to all of our stuff there jerome and i have done all of the seasons of veronica mars on mars investigated we've done all the seasons of breaking bad and better call saul on a, on Real Bad, a Breaking Bad podcast. We've also done all the seasons of Halt and Catch Fire on There's Always Another Podcast. Uh, plus, we have covered Barry, the, the first two seasons of that. And we'll do season three when that comes back. We'll do Better Call Saul season six when that comes back. And then without Jerome, I've done a Lost podcast. And I've done Adventure Time podcast, Flooping the Pig. So we have, by the time you listen to this, we've had our episode come out to cover the fourth and final episode of Adventure Time Distant Lands. So go back and listen to that if you haven't already. And you can follow me on Twitter at KFord13. Jerome, what can people expect from you on Enter the Real World coming up? And where can people follow you on social media if they uh, dare to do so? At Jerome C. 1985 is the place that you can find me 
on the Twitters. Uh, you can also listen to Pantheon Plus in September. Uh, we did a special month honoring Chadwick Boseman. In October, we are going to be discussing John Carpenter. In November, December, it's going to be all about the Muppets as we are going to r- discuss and rank all of the theatrical Muppet movies, Kevin. So that is going to be uh, very exciting. And all I'm going to say is, if you don't think Ralph is the best Muppet, Muppet, then I'm not sure we can continue podcasting. I do really like Statler and Waldorf. Is that okay? I mean, if we keep podcasting, we are going to become Statler and Waldorf. I think we're already there, to be honest with you. I mean, the way I feel sometimes, certainly certainly the case. Uh, yeah, so that's a lot of really fun stuff to look forward from the both of us here. But again, we will be back next month to cover season three of Brockmire. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening, and we will see you then. And until then, enjoy another bear. Well, Kevin, all I'm going to say is if we actually made money from podcasting, let's face it, I would take 90% of the cut because it's really obvious I do all the work. Oh, hey, hey.